Hi, and uh, welcome to the special episode of the feeder segment of the Chicken Chess Club podcast here. I have Mr. Dodgy or Michael Duke with here me as a as a guest, and we are going to talk about uh, things in the, in the chess world or the political chess world. A bit of everything, I guess, right? Yeah. Hello, Pierre. It's good to be here. So I think we should we should deal with the big topic before we get into anything else. Where are Jan and Laurent? Well, as as I said, we are doing the feeder segment, and they are not really part of that. So they are they are skipping this one. And what happened to the the podcast um, in the future? Who, who knows? It's it's suspended temporarily. I would I would say. And if it's ever going to reemerge, uh, uh, yeah. I, I I mean, I never lie, right? So I basically honestly say I don't know. We will, we will see. But uh, right now it's going to be me and Mister Dutchie, and we're going to talk about uh, feed and stuff. We have to be hashtag transparent about everything. But okay, so what's been going on in the chess world over the past month? Because we've missed a lot of stuff. A month is too much, uh, I would say. <laughs> but uh, well, uh, I mean, even in the chess part, Magnus is also, let's say, the focal point, and perhaps also so here, right? A, a big episode was during the Qatar Open. Um, Magnus lost a game, a game, and then he tweeted again. And uh, it brought sort of the anti-cheating discussion a little bit up to 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 life uh, again. By no means to the same extent as during the the Neiman case, but uh, even so, I think. Yeah, that's true. And I I will be accused of being a a Magnus fanboy, but I think firstly he was very clear in his language in that he said. This is not to accuse my opponent of anything who played an amazing game and deserved to win. But honestly, as soon as I saw my opponent was wearing a watch early in the game, I lost my ability to concentrate. Now, I think he's very clear here that he isn't making an accusation of cheating. He is, you know, talking about his the way it's affected him personally. And it's, you know, he's, all, he's definitely blaming himself. And he's, he's saying that this is his problem. And I think it's... Along with the fact that I think he's kind of correct in what he said, I also think that it's a really good thing for the chess world that Magnus is quite honest about things. Because I think that's... Like, Magnus interviews are always worth watching because he is very honest. And he definitely says what he thinks. And it's not just, you know, bland things. Oh, yeah, we played a game of chess. It was, you know, we both had chances. And then it was... I managed to win. And you know, Hopefully I'll do the same again tomorrow. And they're like... You know, these interviews are not very interesting. So I think it's a good thing that he's honest. He speaks his mind. And I think he has a point here. I think it's very difficult to concentrate when this specter of cheating is over your head. Well, first, uh, I should also declare, I'm well, most people know, but I'm employed by, by Magnus. So I'm obviously incredibly... Bu- I, I am not employed by Magnus. I want to make that clear. I don't owe him any, anything. I do. I'm, I'm sorry. The the livelihood of my my family. So so I have a slight conflict of interest here. Uh, but now you know at least. I think it's a good point that Magnus is always uh, being very honest. I was trying to fight, uh, you know, that uh, fight for quite a while about the candidates tournaments because, no, sorry, the World Championship match. No one believed that Magnus would not defend his title, and I kept referring to he's actually just speaking his mind. And, um, well, that didn't go, uh, get through. And, of course, there is a part of this. For instance, uh, Norwegian Jon Ludwig Hammer was tweeting that, sure, 
Magnus is is tweeting that he's probably saying uh, what he says, but he should also realize that uh, people might interpret it in a in a different uh, way. I agree with you fully. He's speaking his mind, and he's not at all accusing the opponent of cheating. And um, I think it's very real this thing that you might get paranoid. I mean, if there is no, um, you know, if you don't feel fully confident in, in, let's say, the police, you will start uh, feeling some kind of insecurity. And especially during a competitive uh, situation. Well, I have not speak, spoken one word with Magnus about this, so I'm talking about um, my own sort of um, you know, feelings during my career. But of course, when you're under pressure, things are not going extremely well, you might you know, go into some kind of negative uh, thought process. And of course, someone you know by perhaps accident not following the rules the organizers not enforcing them people walking around with mobile phones in the playing hall of course it's going to get on your nerves and uh, well i think magnus said that in the following tweet that that's his own responsibility to battle these emotions but uh, well ideally we shouldn't get to that stage right yeah no i agree and i think it's the paranoia angle is a big problem in chess at the moment. I think it's maybe the biggest aspect of cheating because I, I'm i still not fully convinced that cheating is absolutely rife in the chess world, but I am convinced that suspicions of cheating are absolutely rife. And I, I wanted to ask you, like, how do you feel it is just in general amongst the top players at the moment? What do you feel like the sentiment is? The problem is uh, I'm kind of out of the loop in the sense that I'm mainly... You know, interacting with Magnus, I go to not that many tournaments. So, I mean, I honestly don't know what the top 10 thinks about it. But of course, well, you do hear things here and then. I think even uh, Caruana spoke it uh, quite openly on on a rivaling podcast, right? Uh, that he... <laughs> <laughs> We're already calling them rivals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we should at least show off our, some ambition here. Right? But he was talking about, mm-hmm. was it 50%? He was giving in a number of things like this. But... No, of course, there has been situations where someone is insinuating this player, that player. And while a lot of it could be, you know, completely nonsense, the suspicions are always there. Also, I'm not really the right one to ask. I remember that, uh, well, back in the days when Fela was accused of, uh, of cheating, I was playing the European Championship. There was a lot of talks about Fela in that tournament. I think someone went to Danila, who was the president of the European Chess Federation at the time. He said that, well, these games to me look like a very promising young player. And, well, there will be a lot of talk and no evidence, and it's very hard to do something. But, of course, I mean, the paranoia creeps in and it becomes, well, very, very damaging. So that's basically when I keep mentioning that if we don't trust the police, it means that, well, we don't trust that someone who is cheating will necessarily be caught or there will be very efficient measures against it. And that, of course, creates paranoia. And I agree with you that, well, this suspicion is uh, is very bad. I mean, if we had one cheater, the person was caught and then that was it. I don't know h- how big uh, a case that was. We had it with Rouses, of course, on a slightly lower level. But, um, of course, this suspicion thing is, is bad. Also, perhaps in the beginning, it's not a huge issue. I remember maybe the... 2013 candidates, I was just becoming Magnus's coach. I mean, there was some kind of anti-cheating measures, but I think Aronian was joking that, yeah, you, they check us once and that's it. And basically, well, we can just go to the toilet, you know, like in, he was referring to the Godfather, you can hide the, 
the gun, well, in this case, the, the mobile phone uh, in the toilet, and that more or less it. And I think the feeling among the players was that, okay, we know each other for so long time. We have a very good feeling of uh, the strength level uh, of our opponents. I mean, that's very comfortable mm-hmm. to... Is this is players you played for a long time before cheating was, uh, you know, a relevant factor. And this is somehow becoming much more blurry now because, you know, you're playing a lot of players, you have no clue about who is, and you cannot judge their, their strength. And then, well, that is very legitimate. It's very logical. I mean, people grow old, young talents comes. But this makes the problematics much more difficult in a way. And, uh, no, this paranoia seems to have crept in. And I'm sure there is there is top players who who genuinely think that a lot of people is is cheating online. Well, Caruana says I haven't listened to our rivaling podcast, but uh, I saw the, the the tweet. Right, so there's some people who are genuinely convinced. And uh, if it's true, these people are cheating or not? Well, it doesn't really matter in terms of damage. That's what you're saying, and I kind of agree with that. Right? Yeah, and I think what you raise is a really interesting point. That this is kind of the first generation that's now at the kind of not exactly the end of their careers, but you know we're we're heading into you know the teenagers are very dangerous not. at yeah. least. Whereas you know the if you take the previous generation as you know Vichy, you know when he when he when Magnus took over from Vichy, like you know rating wise, I guess it was like two thousand ten eleven. Yeah. So although engines were definitely much stronger than than humans already. I don't think there was much fear about the technology to hide things. Just to jump in, you know, but I was actually Vichy's second in the World Championship in 2005, where Vichy was the favorite, mm-hmm. but Tupalov won. It was not like a huge sensation in any way. But there, there was a lot of debate if uh, Tupalov was, was cheating during the games. I mean, there was basically pop uh, allegations. I know that there were persons who thought uh, that uh, it was extremely likely or they felt it was for sure they were doing it. I think Morozovic was making, maybe he was nominating Ripke or Danilov as player of the year or something like that. I mean, again, I I don't really think it was the case, but the suspicions was there already. For instance, one argument was that, I mean, Tupalov was always sitting on the same chair while everybody else was rotating. So it was easier to make signals like that. And, uh, yeah, but th- but that's uh, that's kind of the point is that even back then, uh, although there was suspicions and accusations, the suspicion was based around Danilov yeah, communicating with Tapalov. Whereas nowadays we don't really think so much that an accomplice is necessary, or if there is an accomplice, it's someone who doesn't need to be in the mm-hmm. room. It's that kind of thing. Whereas you know, technology is is much better nowadays. Because the the kind of previous cases are of like passing signals were I think a bit more primitive and we're these things could still happen but I think it's less what you, you know Magnus talked about the watch mm-hmm. um he found that very distracted and I think that's kind of more the things that are worrying uh, the players at the moment I I think it is important to you know just remove those barriers I think top tournaments especially something you know with the kind of prize money that Qatar Masters had which. For a lot of players, is like life-changing money. You know, for uh, it was Yakubayev who ended up winning that. I don't. I would be very surprised if he's had that kind of. Prize I think he won the Olympic and got a pretty huge bonus. bonus yeah, right? yeah. But, but, but oh, I mean, okay, yeah. I get the point in general. Of course, yeah. I mean, take a, a yearly salary in uh, Uzbekistan; it's considerably lower. Obviously, it's. Uh, I mean, 
it's life-changing, as you, as you said, also career-wise, perhaps not fully, but it could be qualification for a lot of tournaments, so on and so forth, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's the, the next generation is starting to get kind of naturally overtaken by the teenagers, and yeah, they have this specter overlooking that. And I, I do think it is a lot of the top players that are... I was looking through the list of people who have never been accused of cheating or accused someone else of cheating. And there's not that many on the out of the top players. Okay. I think some of them have been accused by others and some of them have made, have made accusations themselves, but I would say they're in the majority if you add those two groups together. Which, you know, it's not clear if there's a huge problem with cheating, but to me it's clear that there's a lot of suspicions and I think... I think tournament organizers do have to be stricter. I think there needs to be better controls. I think with online chess, it's always going to be difficult without someone physically in the room. But I think, you know, there's for the top events, these kind of hybrid events can work out reasonably well. And I think they look kind of good, you know, when they had people in the Oslo studio before uh, playing chess together. I thought that was kind of good. And they had, they had arbiters that they. The players who weren't at the venue, they are, they had to have an arbiter at their house or wherever they were playing from. You know, people can pray, play from the St. Louis Chess yeah, Club, yeah. for example, because there there's a bunch of top that, players that kind of live in that area. Absolute top, but that's maybe also a huge start already, right? If we can have full integrity there, it's a good point you mentioned that mm-hmm. basically everyone has been involved, either in being accused or being part of uh, accusing to a certain extent, right? I. I cannot remember Ding being on either side there, but Ding was the the one outlier that yeah, yeah. I I was gonna I was he's, thinking he's an of, outlier but, yeah. in many ways. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, ranging world champ. Are we getting to the technological technological stage where you think it can still it can actually be a one man operation? I think it's possible. I think it's still difficult, I, but I, I've seen things that make me think that is it's doable. Whether anyone has actually done it isn't really not clear because I think that you need to have very specific skills. You probably looking at the kind of the way the chess world is those, you would probably need to hire someone to build it for you. Uh, some kind of device. I think I, I would be very surprised if any, you know, 2700 ish player has those kind of skills to, to build something themselves. And then, you know, makes the jump to 2800. Cause I think it's still, you can't like, this isn't the kind of thing that's going to be, you know, a beginner becomes super grandmaster. It's never, I don't think we are really concerned about that at the moment. I think it's more, you know, maybe a decent grandmaster becomes one of the best players in the world overnight. And that's. Yeah, or like uh, Tour de France, or I mean, other, I mean, there was uh, Sochi Olympiad and, and so on and so forth, where at the absolute elite level, you decide to tweak things in your, your favor, right? I mean, well, you uh, sound like. You cannot, you cannot go down to the shop, pay a hundred euros, and then you get the equipment. But if we talk about, uh, let's say, the level of intelligent services, I mean, I don't know if they would be capable of doing it extremely easily in a way. I mean, in World Championship matches, I think basically, I mean, we decided that, um, okay, if someone with the resources wants to break into our communication system, they are going to manage. I mean, one thing is hacking our emails, but also... I mean, entering some person's flat or whatever is not—it's uh, not impossible if you have uh, sufficient will and, and resources, right? Um, so, but um, yeah, 
Okay, so we, we've lured people in with very exciting cheating talk about Magnus. Now, it's time for your FIDE segment, the true FIDE segment. What have FIDE been up to this week? Oh, I, <laughs> they have been up to a, a lot of stuff. I mean, um, but um, oh, there's been so many things since the, the last time. The thing I'm paying most personally attention to, but it's not spoken about that much, is the big the feed sponsor, um, Timur Tolev and his company Freedom Holding. Chess.com, but Tyus Swenson did uh, an article uh, on it uh, maybe like a week ago that uh, I forgot, uh, maybe it was CBS, I don't know the abbreviation, but one of the bigger US networks actually wrote uh, an article about that uh, the company is now being researched by the the US uh, authorities. I mean, Tulov uh, is the big feed sponsor with Freedom Holding. They sponsored the World Championship match. The match the recent match was uh, played in, in Kazakhstan. So was the previous Rapid and Blitz, if I remember correctly. Uh, but mm-hmm. his company is uh, sort of on the stock exchange of of Nasdaq in the US. So that's why it's registered there. And now there is sort of apparently some kind of um, you know research being done by the U.S. Uh, authorities. That happens to a lot of companies, as far as I can understand. So it's not extremely dramatic, perhaps, but I think maybe in April and then later in, in August, two sort of uh, private research companies came out with reports where they said there is a, l- a lot of troubles there that it could be certain things could be fake, they could be breaking sanctions, and so on and so forth. And what they both these private companies were saying is that we have taken up a considerable short position, meaning that they are making a financial bet that the stock is going to fall. Immediately after they did that, the stock went up a lot. And um, again, that seems as, as trust uh, among the investors, but Tualov himself uh, owns 70% of the stock. So again, those who is sort of believing in the conspiracies uh, are saying, well, that can easily happen. Since then, the stock has been falling to, I mean, like 75, where it was 100 at max. And there is things mm-hmm. brewing there. It's interesting what this kind of research is, is sort of is leading to. And that could actually have big implications for feed, partly because, well, I mean, some are suggesting that the, the, the company could fold. And then at least the feed would lose a sponsor, but also you will have huge reputational damage if it turns out that he's actually is kind of a fraud. And again, I have no reasons to, to say that, except I'm pointing to two uh, independent reports suggesting that. So that is, a, I think, a huge case. And basically only, it seems like me in the chess world who's been caring about it, I tweeted a bit. But now chess.com has actually made an article about it. But I think it's a good example of that. We're not really dealing with these things internally in the chess world i think there's no one in feed who has cared one bit is uh, is this a legitimate company or they haven't done uh, proper research into it but things externally can suddenly jump into our world and overrule it in a way most likely they will not but um, i mean this is kind of a big case that in my opinion is no one really cares about probably because it's it's rather complicated um, and it's way too complicated for me but it could certainly have rather big implications in my opinion yeah i guess it's uh, it is definitely very complex Extremely. to understand kind of what's actually happening there and also i suspect that even if they go bust fide will just say yeah. or emil will just say okay we didn't see this coming no one could have possibly predicted this uh, 
we're working hard to find new sponsors and you know they'll find someone with a very similar business model who will probably you, you're probably right in a way that it will not trigger a huge event sort of trigger huge turmoil uh, internally in feed and you can argue that well they cash in the money so what's the the big deal they will cash in some somewhere else in a way maybe it's um, only me who thinks it will do reputational damage and i don't really think that much of the reputation anyway uh, you could say but um well they have to finance things from from somewhere right and we saw that uh, uh, from 2021 basically from Dorkovich was elected there was a huge number of um, russian state sponsorships um, after february 24th it went to Tulov and others and should that avenue sort of also close down well they will have to come up with uh, new things to, to some extent but of course uh, india is booming we have a chinese uh, world champion there is obviously avenues to, to go at i would say the next uh, candidates tournament is going to happen in, in in canada with a sponsor as far as i understand no connection to russia at all more rather poker correctly right or who is the uh, oh it's the the Sheinberg Sheinberg family, family. yeah is yeah they right? are they are basically yeah. They're also sponsoring yeah, yeah. Grand Suisse. I mean, they are, yeah, yeah. have been there. They have Well, they sponsor maybe the Grand Swiss, and also they were sponsoring the Candidates Tournament, right? So uh, the previous Candidates Tournament. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not sort of fundamental in any way, but for the feeder machinery to run, there has to be be income, obviously, in a way. And, uh, I don't think we have that many big sponsors, I would say. No, they definitely do a lot of big events and i think they actually own hotels as well if i remember correctly because i think the like maybe the marriott hotel or something like that i think they have on one of the yeah, big yeah, chains sure. so that, that, could, that could be yeah it's yeah i mean it, i i have some sympathy with fide for you know it's difficult to get sponsors but i think they're kind of stuck in this cycle of the they go to sponsors who are, have clear connections to Russia in one way or another, and that, to some extent, is going to scare off other sponsors. Um, I don't know to what extent. I don't know if you know big Western companies would be interested in sponsoring FIDE with their track record anyway, but I feel like there should chess is big enough at the moment that there should be some interest, and you know, with the Champions Chester comfortably attracting you mm-hmm. know pretty big sponsors like Puma companies like that it does feel like you know chess is big enough and I, and I think in general like sponsors care less about the organization than you know the the game that they're involved with you know so if chess has a decent reputation and i think it does uh, i think it should be a reasonable prospect for for big companies and yeah it depends how those conversations go if you know if they are approaching FIDE or FIDE are approaching other big companies I have no idea um, but it does there does seem to be a tendency to you know get money from one direction and maybe get lucky somewhere else but I don't know how it it, it works in a way at some point well you could also make the argument that FIDE didn't seem too too interested in changing I mean with the with Dvorkovic as president it would be obvious to to do it how they did until at least uh, 2022 right but you're mm-hmm. sort of from the outside world of chess, at least until recently. I mean, well, I think we have just got used to it. But for me, it's always been strange that, uh, for instance, when Magnus became world champion, I thought, okay, world championship matches, by any kind of logic, shouldn't the price fund go up? I mean, you would have great sponsorships because of his sort of uh, 
attraction for the Western market, for the media attention. The first match was uh, good in 2013 uh, in Chennai with Vichy, but that was basically Vichy, you know, pulling up the, the sponsor himself in, in Chennai, who had a great price fund. The next one was done for minimum, for, for one million. And, uh, it's a lot of money, but it's not two point whatever it was in, in Chennai and what it was uh, earlier. I think, for instance, Gelfand against Vichy in, in 2012. And of course, especially Vichy against Topalov had considerably higher price funds than Magnus against Karana. And that is odd if you look at it from a market perspective, uh, at least. And uh, no, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to understand. While, for instance, Norway could not easily bring up that kind of uh, funds, for instance, or US or stuff like that. Uh, I mean, for instance, Karana against Magnus. Well, St. Louis, uh, Rex Sinkerfield, isn't it? Uh, I mean, isn't it? Wouldn't it have been easy for him? Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I don't know why there hasn't been a match in St. Louis, but I, I did see Rex actually speaking about this last week, and he said, you know, it's his dream to have a World Championship match in St. Louis. So, okay. yeah, but I, I don't know. My impression is that they don't have a brilliant relationship no. with Fide because there has been no big. You know, it's such a natural venue for the candidates. Never mind the match. Just like why, why hasn't there been a candidate there? Because you know they have this incredible club. Sure. They have, you know, they're set up to do these top level events all the time. And yeah, there basically hasn't been. I don't think there's been any FIDE rate. Uh, sorry, official mm-hmm. FIDE events at St. Louis. So to me, that says there's probably not a great relationship with FIDE. Which you know, if I, you would think FIDE would be doing everything in their power to repair that because St. Louis. Other than you know, there has been some questions about things they've done over the last couple of years. I think in general they've been such a a big benefit to the chess world in terms of the number of top tournaments that have you know appeared around there, and not just you know top top events. They have these St. Louis winter and spring and summer of round robins for you know twenty six to twenty seven hundred players. So yeah, it does. It's it's interesting that there hasn't been a match there, but yeah, it, it does seem that that's something that Rex wants. So I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know why it hasn't. I would speculate <laughs> that well, Rex would be happy to pay off the players and host the event and such, but that comes with a you know a circus on the side. Also, there has to be percentages to feed. Earlier, it was uh, perhaps twenty percent. Maybe now it has been changed structurally. I'm not fully into it. I think when they published the, the overall budget for a world championship match is obviously considerably bigger than than uh, the actual price fund. So, of course, there could be complications mm-hmm. like that. You can also argue that, um, I mean, for instance, look at FIFA and such. When they delegate a world championship somewhere, is it uh, purely a financial decision? Uh, is it purely a decision of what's bad for chess? Or is it also an internal uh, political decision. It could be a lot of uh, each things. I think, to be fair, it's likely that yeah. uh, Fide would say Rex have never bid for a world championship. And, well, also he was running against Ilumshinov, or not not directly, but running on Kasparov's board, if I remember correctly, right? And such. But, of course, it, it is somewhat strange that St. Louis has not done that. And I agree with you that, well... While it's a, it's a different debate, but friends, now we have the Grand Swiss, which was your, earlier the Isle of Man. So there is some overlap there. St. Louis appeared out of nowhere and just became a huge addition to the chess world. 
I mean, the, the subject of uh, what went wrong there, we will actually have a, a separate part on uh, later or something similar within the this episode, but um, of course, in general, mm -hmm. St. Louis has been a huge asset. I mean, well, it's provided a livelihood for a bunch of chess players. It's created a lot of uh, chess events, and uh, I agree with their financial situation, with the framework they have, not having a, a candidates tournament. I haven't thought about that. Is kind of weird in some uh, way, and of course, World Championship match, especially Magnus Carana, would have been very obvious there. Yeah, I mean, I I did wonder if maybe Caruana didn't want it there because, you know, sometimes the players don't like to play at home. You know, Magnus has never been too keen on playing a match in Norway, as far as I understand, because, there's you know, you do have the extra circus around you and it's a bit of a distraction. Um, but yeah, it does seem like just such a natural place to have a I doubt he would match. have been against it, to be honest. Also, it would be strange. I mean, he would get uh, time zone uh, advantages and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sure. I just thought maybe it would play a part. I, I doubt he would, you know, be a hard no against it and just like, no, this is totally unacceptable. But yeah, maybe he wasn't super keen on, no. on that match yeah. being there and... It's possible, but that I actually kind of uh, doubt. Of course, well, it could be Magnus also who thought, okay, why should I play on his home uh, turf and such? But I think mm -hmm. also, yeah. well, back in the days, there was some kind of uh, bidding process for the kind of things and how it was working. I don't know. I think, for instance, for one of Vichy's matches, well, uh, you know, I have absolutely no proof, or I was not even saying any kind of uh, source that sort of would direct but I think for some match there was like three bits but two of them could be not that sincere but were amazingly made to push up the, the, the third bit in a way so having these kind of processes uh -huh. where people can bid in, in due time uh, would be a good thing I understand FIDE do have bidding procedure, procedures but they are typically announced a bit out of the blue and sort of with a rather short uh, time limit so I think uh, there's a much bigger debate behind the scenes, then there is a public procedure where you can submit bits in, in, in due time and you know in advance that, okay, there is this two years to do it. Of course, for World Championship matches, I guess also knowing the players matters a considerable part of it, right? And if you have to bid before the players are known, it becomes, you know, awkward to some extent. So maybe that's what it ends up as it does. Yeah, possibly. But then, you know, the match should be serious enough that it doesn't really matter who the players yeah. are. I remember the match in London as a, a rather big success. There was considerable amount of uh, press there and such. But um, mm -hmm. uh, it puzzles me that with that kind of attention, and I would say especially World Championship matches has an extremely strong brand. It's followed, well, basically worldwide in, in mass media. This is really an event that pops out of the, the chess news. It's just uh, mainstream media news, right? That the, the, the yeah. sponsorship deals are, are not. It's the, it's the only. It's the only chess yeah. event that makes uh, global. News. I mean, like other than like yeah. cheating, yeah, yeah, and of sexism and things like that. But like, the, it's the only event that makes uh, international news purely for. I mean, the reasons and of Olympiad chess. must be insanely more expensive, but of course, in terms of media covers and sponsor value, I would assume it's less uh, valuable. Yeah, I mean, I think the Olympiads are definitely a big deal in the country that they're in, and it'll definitely make national news, but international news, I would be surprised. Unless, you know, one of the countries does particularly well, you know, yeah. their country will do coverage, but, you know. Like, I doubt there was US coverage of Uzbekistan within the Olympiad in India, no. for example. Like, um, I'm sure India and Uzbekistan covered it very well, but... Yeah, so the, the the match is special and it, it should be and also I mean should be treated special. I don't know, but we seem to have 
a chess boom to some extent. I mean, at least if you look at uh, chess.com numbers, if you look at uh, streamers' numbers and, and things like this, right? In Gotham Chess, Agama the Tour, and such, it seems to be booming in, in quite a way. And I would be surprised if there shouldn't be some kind of uh, spillover effect, but I think we are lacking this sort of chess sponsorships doesn't seem extremely linked to market uh, value in that sense. Um, it's more like, well, our sponsors, I mean, doesn't really seem to sell a product, right? It, it doesn't strike me as obvious that the last sponsor for the World Championship match was sponsoring it in order to sell more products, for instance. Uh, that's true. So. Yeah, and I think in general, like the, the players that get sponsorship, they tend to do, their sponsorships tend to be more logical like i think a few players have sponsors by like tech companies for example and to me that's a very natural fit you know chess has a very clear connection with technology in general so you can broadly expand that to basically any tech company it makes sense for them to have a top chess player as one of their ambassadors I think in general the players do pretty well. Magnus well is Puma like and betting, and well, you can like betting or, or, or not, but well, Puma and uh, Unibet they they are dealing with Magnus because they think it's a good business for them, right? I mean, they get exposed both. Yeah, and also I think if you treat chess as a sport, then Magnus is definitely the first person you should think yeah. of, because I think he. Well, so was Kasparov in his, he his definitely, days, such, yeah. right? But well, you are saying that others also get quite some uh, sponsor deals, right? I think even some of the the young Indian players, maybe it was Irigaisi who got a incredible yeah. sponsor deal, right? Uh, and yeah, he had a very. I think it was over a million dollars, maybe one point yeah, five yeah. million. Maybe, I think it was over yeah, three years well, or so. But no, that was a. Very good. I think that that was yeah exactly. No, no, I was just. Uh, and I think Karana and Geary and such also have uh, quite some some sponsor deals. But well, you as, we are describing them as logical sponsor deals. That's the phrase you are using, right? Simply, it, uh, well, it it makes sense, and you can explain it very well in a, in a very easily understandable manner, right? Yeah, yeah. Do we have anything else to talk about? Because we've gone oh. over and we've got a very important yeah. interview Actually, coming up. No, next. I think we can uh, end it here. But uh, please hang on for for the interview here. We're gonna have uh, Mr. Dodgy is gonna well, he's gonna be there. But we have a, a special guest who will tell us about uh, which kind of foundation she's created, yeah. and we're very thankful for that. So, so in interests of full transparency, we've uh, started with the nepotism in the very first episode. I've brought my friend and co-founder of the Women in Chess Foundation on Emilia Castellau to talk about how are we going to save all of the women in chess. So don't leave until after the interview. See you we'll be right some back. point again, hopefully. Welcome to the interview segment here. Today we're going to talk about a new thing in chess called the Women in Chess Foundation. And uh, well, we have Mr. Dodgy here, but he's actually now becoming Michael Duke because he's one of the founders. But especially welcome to Emilio Castello because you are the founder and leader of this uh, federation. So, well, congratulations with uh, getting it up and running and perhaps uh, tell us about it. Thanks. Yeah, so um, when uh, Jen's story came out in uh, around February, March, uh, Michael and I were very, um, you know, upset about what happened and, and angry. And we had many long Google meeting calls about, you know, what 
actually could we do to change things in chess that would get, you know, everyday chess players involved. And so we kind of came up with the Women in Chess Foundation. Uh, I actually can't remember what came first, if it was the advocacy program or if it was the Women in Chess Foundation, but essentially one of our main kind of initiatives is we want to have independent advocates at every single chess tournament, which will obviously take many years. Um, This is a long-term project for us, but we hope that with the advocates, people will have kind of a third person to turn to, to um, allow them to report uh, anything if necessary and and find that support um, in the chess community Uh, We're also working on, you know, safe play guideline reform with clubs and federations, as well as um, marketing women's chess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, interesting. Um, Well, I think let's go into the details of uh, sort of the the actual things you have in your program. But I mean, you're saying that it was, well, Jennifer Shahada thing that triggered it. Um, well, what exactly triggered it, it, it there? I understand it's a it's grueling in many ways, but what exactly is it that you you see that's very wrong there, and how can uh, the, the initiative you're gonna present uh, help it? Okay, so the with the Jennifer Shahadi story incident, which involved Alejandro Ramirez, where he was accused of sexual harassment and misconduct over a long time, a long. Uh, period of time with a lot of different women and uh, Jen was the first person to come forward for those of people the two people who are listening that maybe don't know um, there's a few things about that whole story that we found particularly disturbing and one of the things is that uh, Jen was almost uniquely well placed in the chess world to able to deal with these kind of things um she's a very prominent player and commentator she's very well known she's very well connected in in u.s chess in particular you know she knows everyone and everyone knows her and she's someone with a tremendous amount of respect in the community you know people she's very well respected as a player and an author and you know she's done everything at chess and she went to the wall street journal and uh you know she was respectable enough for the Wall Street Journal to say, okay, this is someone that we should listen to. And they published the story and, you know, everything came up. And then kind of nothing happened. And she didn't, she'd made complaints in the past to St. Louis Chess Club and US Chess. And it turned out that, you know, they hadn't really, really taken action at all. Maybe there was some investigation started, but it didn't seem like there was, they were particularly serious about them. And uh, the thing that I found particularly disturbing about that is that if that could happen to someone who's basically at the top of the chess world, she knows everybody. Um, what would happen to like a 17 year old girl who's an amateur chess player who accused the same person? Um, because people are just not going to listen to it. And it felt to me and, and Amelia that we clearly needed a new organization that was focused on supporting, you know, survivors of this kind of misconduct. Um, because it didn't seem like the institutions, particularly in US chess, you know, US chess and St. Louis didn't seem very interested in dealing with it. And, you know, it's highly unlikely that FIDE were going to take any proactive steps to deal with something like this because they still haven't concerned themselves with Ramirez in any way. 
Mm -hmm. um, okay. Well, I guess, well, to sort of play the, the devil's advocate, I mean, well, one could go to the police. My impression was that some of the things was very much up on, on, on that scale. Um, are you talking about scales that are, not, uh, sort of, let's say, cases that shouldn't be taken to the police, but that the chess world should actually deal with uh, by themselves? And also, how is it in other sports, is your impression, compared to, to chess? Are they facing similar problems, or why are chess so different? Is it because of the gender balance, for instance, and such? In terms of these cases, you have to understand that like a young girl who is experiencing this feels very alone in the world when this happens and may not feel comfortable enough to go to the police themselves. And one thing that we really wanted was for this to be accessible kind of for everyone. And I think that this is, it's not a revolutionary idea. It's something that happens advocacy all the time in like advocates that go with children to court, medical advocates who assist um, survivors of sexual assault, like at the hospital um, while they're getting their medical checks done. And uh, when I was in undergrad, we had a sort of similar issue where it was a a male dominated world and you had kind of bullying and harassment going on that sometimes obviously there are things that need to be reported to the police that should be reported to the police but oftentimes they don't because we have a culture not only in chess but I think around the world internationally where things like this aren't necessarily taken seriously. Um, but also at the same time, you have some things that like bullying that doesn't necessarily like needs to be addressed by the police. So it's more kind of a way for people to like find support and resources because when I was doing research for this and looking at all of the, you know, national federations that, um, have reporting systems and was just going kind of through the map. A lot of this information is super inaccessible. And I, it took me many PDF documents and clicking on kind of random links to find even ways to report it to, to national federations. And so it's, um, it's a very kind of complicated situation and it's not necessarily about like addressing the cases themselves, but having people who are supportive of others and kind of helping them find and make decisions about what they want to do. So, so but, but basically you are saying that there is, I don't know, a hole in the system or something like this, that, well, when you are abused, bullied or, or anything like, like this, there is no reasonable safe space where people could, uh, could go to is that is that understanding you correctly yeah i think there's a huge gap in and void in the system where you don't have kind of those resources i mean for other sports i was looking at um like the international olympic committee and and you know tennis and they have like very clear ways to kind of report these incidents um especially i think after uh the story of uh the coach of the gymnast 
Um, I can't recall his name right now, but I think after that story came out, there was huge like institutional changes and institutions like the International Olympic Committee adopted these things. And they have a whole report um, published on their website about how to implement reporting mechanisms um, at the local level for local sports. And so, but you did not see FIDE, uh, the institution that probably should um, theoretically be, you know, uh, changing these things, do anything. And so we decided to do something. And, well, for instance, well, FIDE does have a, let's say, women uh, in, in chess commission, but perhaps that's not uh, exactly for, for this uh, in a way. I mean, that you are doing it sort of, let's say, outside the FIDE, outside any kind of established uh, organization. Is it to be fully independent, which you think will sort of uh, create protection for the individuals, or is it just distrust in these organizations, uh, for instance? There's definitely a combination of the two, but I think even if there wasn't any distrust of the institutions that we currently have, I think it's important to be independent for a project like this. Um, I think it's like currently there there are issues with the leadership of certain organizations, um, but even if there wasn't, like the chess world is so small that it's always good there's always going to be issues where you might have a reason to report someone and the only person you can report to is that person's friend um which could often be the case it's not this isn't a specific thing about fide or any federation um but it's you know the chess world is very very small like that and that's like this can also apply for tournaments you know Tournament organizers are often very friendly with the top players that turn up at their tournaments for good reason. You know, they want them to play at their tournaments. They become friends with them. They hang out with them every year. It's, it's good. But also, you know, if there's a report of misconduct at a tournament and it's one of the the players who, you know, the tournament organizer really, really likes, it's going to be difficult to go directly to the organizer and say, look, this guy has done something wrong. Um, so it has to be an independent organization. I'm I'm sure there's been cases in the past where there is this strong incentive to hush it down in a way. I think also it's you, Michael, who is on the on the the web pages mentioning that things are being swept under the rock. I mean, you, you mentioned this uh, Jennifer Shahada and uh, Ramirez case as the one triggering it for you, but well, that's a very sort of let's say grave case in a way. But is it your impression that there is a lot of stuff being swept under the rock? Is that sort of also, why you're pushing it, you might have knowledge of that, or what is your general feeling on such? Yeah, I, I think uh, every every incident that was mentioned a lot, like and the, the gen, we, we keep going back to to Jen, but you know, Jen also talked about other people who were affected by Alejandro's behavior, and um, there was a there's a wide range of of behavior some of which was maybe kind of fairly minor and some of it was extremely serious. And I think every single incident that was mentioned in that kind of whole story, uh, the rate of underreporting for every single one of them is huge. Like you could easily say 10 times as many stories exist in the chess world and they're simply not reported. And the reason for that is there are consequences for reporting and there are consequences for speaking up and 
like what? Can you example? What does that mean? Um, well, I don't recall the last time Jen was a commentator at St. Louis Chess Club. Um, she recently left US Chess under not great terms by the going by the discussions online, and I I don't want. No, no, fair, fair I don't enough. Know exactly you... what the the kind of circumstances that led to her leaving were, but I don't think she was treated particularly well by them. Mm-hmm. Um, and with another case that came out recently uh, with Sabrina mm-hmm. Shivanas, yeah. uh, within several days of her posting tweets about someone that she didn't name, uh, she was threatened with legal action. Mm-hmm. Um, and the consequences for the people who have perpetrated things have been pretty minimal so far so i think it's it's very clear that it's there's a danger to speaking out and i think uh it's not the way the chess world is at the moment there's no big institution that will protect women who speak out mm-hmm. yeah Un- until now yeah oh, sorry until now yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah but just to just to add on to that i think coming from a perspective where like i'm obviously fairly new in the chess world like being really in it for only about a year like one of the first things that you know I'm told when I go to to chess tournaments and and make friends with people is the kind of like open secrets that exist about uh you know certain people and like this is something that I think happens kind of quite often is is the sharing of these like open secrets and I think that by having that kind of culture and lack of accountability, like we very much needed an, an independent organization to, to kind of not necessarily, um, I guess, like, I don't want to say like police those open secrets, but like, it's important for people to have a place to go where they can talk about what's going on in a safe space. And take action should they want to so but do you think chess is different from uh, let's say the real world there I'm, I'm sorry i've spent all my life in the chess world so I, i honestly don't know but you both i mean you're both rather new in this world it actually struck you as being markedly different uh, than elsewhere or you think it's a it's a general problem i mean me too has happened in, in a bunch of places. And uh, for instance, in, in Danish politics, as far as I know, there has been some open secrets that perhaps only collapsed much, much later than there were open secrets. I mean, do you think the chess world is uh, very different? Uh, I would say it's not clear that chess players are necessarily worse than the general population. I've seen some Thanks. people say that they are. And I've seen, uh, particularly, I've seen a couple of people coming from like the esports world that have said chess is by far the most toxic game they've ever been involved with, which I think is quite striking considering the reputation that a lot of online games have. Um, but regardless of whether chess players are worse or not than the general population, I think it's very clear that the the abuses that happen in the chess world are focused on a much smaller group of women. So if, you know, the the rate of sexual harassment in the general population is just just as a completely random number, let's say it's 5%, uh, that will be spread in the general population between 50% of women. Whereas in the chess world, there are far fewer women. This 5% is focused on 15% of women. So I think for the women in chess, it's clearly far worse. 
So you're basically saying on the individual level, simply because of the, the math situation with, let's say, 10% of the players being women, it gets uh, so much worse. While, I mean, take a, a random chess player, he, he will behave as well as uh, as anybody. But it becomes a, a bigger problem simply because of the gender balance we have, as far as I understand it, right? And yeah, I think it becomes... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, I agree. That's my, that's my suspicion, but mm-hmm. I, we don't know for sure. But yeah, continue. Well, I think that it's chess is very different as well because they have no processes in place to deal with this kind of situation. Like when I went to university, one thing that they schooled us on, and I went to a Catholic university as well. So, you know, you have to kind of take into consideration uh, like how Catholics believe about, you know, premarital sex and, and kind of sexual harassment and assault and all of that. But like my university had a program where if women felt unsafe at night, they you could call someone and they would happily walk you back to your dorm. We have Title IX, which is was a huge legislation that really kind of improved reporting mechanisms for uh, women in instances like of abuse. And so in the real world, there's actually ways for women to report these things and have them be taken seriously. And in chess, that's just not the case, given the institutions that exist and kind of the nicheness of chess as a sport. And like, we technically don't qualify to be scrutinized by the International Olympic Committee, even though we were a part of the eSport Olympics. It's just not something that they um, like want to deal with or not want to deal with, but that they said they they don't deal with it because I've asked. And um, so it's like we live in this gray area, which makes when things like happen, when things like this happen in chess, I think much, much worse because there's no way to deal with it or to to kind of uh, fix the problem. Mm hmm. Um, but well, now you are making this. But do you think you can actually make a difference? I mean, well, I mean, you say that it will if someone uh, you know turns someone in, it will have consequences for that person. Uh, wouldn't that still be the case? I mean, well, how can you make a a, a big difference? I mean, you you, you don't have uh, sanctions. Uh, uh, you cannot uh, ban people or things like that. I understand that you can be helpful and be supportive, but is that really going to change the dynamics? Um, in the short term, probably not. Although it will definitely help the people, the, the survivors. Um, but also, we are going to be working with federations, and we've already started this on updating their safe play policies and you know the sanctions that are attached to those policies. I think it's there is a very wide and inconsistent range of policies within the chess world that vary massively from federation to federation. Um, some federations have excellent policies with clear sanctions and they follow through them. And I think the Norwegian uh, Federation is a pretty decent example of that. Um, some federations have really good policies that they don't apply. And, you know, there's a couple of them that they clearly need some help in, you know, following through on the things that they've also, they've already done and not, you know, hiding behind the fact that they have good policies, but they're not willing to to attach them to sanctions or, you know, enforce them. And there's also a lot of 
still federations that basically have no policies and no clear reporting mechanisms and no no way to sanction things. I mean, I don't, I actually don't know what FIDE's uh, official policy would be on just sexual harassment. Like, I don't know what kind of sanctions there would be. And I don't think they've ever, the ethics committee has really ever dealt with a case like that. And I've read more ethics cases than uh, a healthy person. And I don't recall reading one about sexual harassment, which is very strange, but it, it can't, there isn't just one solution to this, this problem. Like it's the advocacy program, I think is a huge step forward and it's definitely something that the chess world needs, but on its own, it it needs a lot of support and uh, making sure that federations have like real policies that they can follow through on is another part of that. Yeah. But also as an institution, like we have the advocacy program and we're not just letting advocates like run free after training. Like we have an oversight process on how um, advocates have to kind of act when they, you know, receive a, a survivor in their case and, and how to kind of let us know what they're what they're up to and, and make sure that not one advocate has too many cases and so on and so forth. But like with that information that we receive from the oversight process, we are able to kind of like track trends and keep clubs and federations accountable. So if we see that, you know, a club in England has multiple reports against someone and we see that kind of in the oversight process, we can reach out to that club and be like, hey, we've gotten kind of multiple instances of, you know, someone at your tournament or club committing misconduct, like we are obviously keeping an eye on you. You need to address this, go through some sort of process um, kind of in a, in a compliance manner. We're obviously not a reporting agency. We can't ever make like reports on behalf of people, but you know, we do eventually want to have like impact reports that, that showcase with anonymized information, like, if there are cases that go unreported just so that the chess world can like get uh, a sense of how much this actually happens that they don't see of uh, that women may not speak out publicly, but while still protecting kind of the women that do come to us. But is there, I mean, it almost sounds like, well, you have this idea that if in a certain region or you mention a certain club, you have multiple reports then, well, statistics starts to, to, to matter a lot. Is, are you even seeing it to that extent, or is it more to have a, a general idea of the overall picture? I think it's just to have a general idea of the overall picture. Um, and, you know, people can do with that information what they will. I just think that there's a, a really big disconnect between, um, you know, we hear these stories online And then the news cycle happens and, you know, we get another story and uh, the story just keep coming. But we don't really see kind of the bigger picture of of how things are. And a lot of the stories, you know, are very Eurocentric and, and either American or, or Europe. And, um, you know, this could be happening in other places that we might not hear about. And so it's important to have kind of that bigger picture. No, on that sentence, you say Eurocentric. When when I look at your well leadership, me well me including here as an interviewer, it's very I would say European, perhaps uh, 
well, a Western, one could argue. I mean, if you look at it from Fidesz perspective, are you sure that on a global level, it's seen as a problem that this is not, I mean, this Me Too movement is generally a, a Western phenomenon, uh, as I see it. And, uh, well, take India, China, Russia. Is, does it matter to them at all? Do you see yourself as a global movement? Is this a global problem? Or are you trying to solve a very important yet regional problem? Well, yeah, so... First of all, first of all, we have uh, people on the board from four different continents. I checked today. So we've got four out of five. We're not there yet, but um, no, it's a, we're definitely to start off with uh, due to the proximity of us both living in Europe and having connections in Europe. It's uh, clearly much easier to, to talk to the people that are around you. Um, but we do have one of the Ageline on the board is from Argentina and Nagarhan is also from Turkey. Uh, we're looking at adding people to the board still. We want to, we're very kind of proactive about trying to get someone who represents Africa on the board. And India is obviously almost the center of chess at this point. So it's clearly a very important place. We have already had people signing up to be advocates from Africa and India, which to me suggests that there probably is definitely some desire from it. Um, but cultures vary massively around the world. Um, to some extent, I think this has been highlighted more uh, in in Western media, but I think the issues are, are global, and I think there's a desire at the moment uh, kind of from everywhere. I mean, I've definitely spoken to people about this from, well, maybe not China. Actually, yeah, China as well. No, I've, I've, speaking, I've spoken to people from China and Russia about this, and women, and they definitely feel the same way so it's maybe not everyone it's maybe not as widespread but there's absolutely uh, a, a desire for this kind of program in i would say every country okay good um this advocates thing seems to sort of be the the cornerstone of 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 it uh, so far but i mean how can you sort of ensure that advocates are sort of dressed for for actually handling this responsible? How can well, I mean, one of your arguments is there's no one else we really can trust to to go to and talk. Well, why can we go to to you? Why why can we trust you? Would be my my question. Why can you trust? No, me? Why, well, why can not not you personally? <laughs> but well, I mean, you, you, no, no, you. I, 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 well, no, but I mean, sort of the advocates in, in general. How can you educate people? How can they be more trustworthy than uh, generally and such in a way. Yeah. So essentially um, when I developed the advocacy program, I took a lot of what I learned from, I used to work with uh, children with disabilities uh, back in the U S and I had to go through a lot of training um, for that. So I personally had already had experience doing advocacy work beforehand um, I also worked with a sociologist in the U.S. to to develop this so that um, obviously advocates aren't met, licensed medical professionals. You know, we're not therapists, but we can educate people on how to respond to survivors and, and people who are experiencing misconduct and uh, teach them certain skills to help support these people um, and also provide them with the resources to allow the survivor to to navigate through the process and, and make an empowered decision on what they want to do in their case. Um, and this is, you know, tailored for the chess community specifically from 
my experience, from Dodgy's experience, from, you know, Lula's experience and, and other women that we've spoken to over the past six months. And, um, and so it's developed from a lot of experience as well as, you know, advocates, they're required to have a background check and, um, you know, the class sizes are small so that we can kind of get to know people and, and make sure that they are uh, up to standard of what we think advocates should be. Um, but obviously we know in the long run that no one's perfect and, and some people could slip through the cracks. And so, you know, we also set up a, a reporting mechanism in place should, um, you know, it come out later that an advocate was a part of misconduct and, um, by having that in place and, and recognizing that, you know, people can make mistakes. I think that makes people trust us more as well. Um, and that we will actually do something should, uh, you know, anything come out in the future, but, um, yeah. Interesting. How would, um, how would it work? You said there will be advocates at, at tournaments. So basically the name of the advocate be, would be, be known and, um, How should uh, players react to that if they want to get in touch? Is there, you have, do you have sort of specific guidelines for that or how, how does it work? Yeah, so everyone that goes through the advocacy training is their name is publicized on our Find an Advocates page. And um, clubs will also, how we're working with them is, um, for example, the uh, Sligo tournament in, in Ireland, they want to have advocates. And so the advocate's name will be posted on their tournament website. And, and uh, so should someone want to reach out to them, it's on that tournament website and our website. We also have a form on our website that people can fill out um, if they want to be connected with an advocate. Uh, we also envision the advocacy program being uh, accessible virtually as well. So, you know, if, I'm here in Austria and, and Dodgy's in Sweden and I wanted to talk to Dodgy as my advocate, then uh, I could reach out to him and we could speak uh, online and, and talk about whatever I was going through. Um, and so they can just reach out to us and, and we'll connect them. Uh, we are keeping everything uh, in-house just because privacy and confidentiality is really important to us. Um, when people reach out to us, it's a two people that see it and it's either me or Dodgy and then whoever the advocate that uh, we're connecting them to. Um, we have a very survivor oriented privacy policy. So we're trying to keep things as private and confidential as possible. But it almost sounds like you are like an emergency service. Basically anyone in the chess world who had a, a bad experience can basically log on to your website, easily find the, a way to get in touch and very quickly be sort of uh, helped. Is that understand it correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> impressive. That's it's going to be very interesting to see. I mean, you're even imagining, let's say, at the start of the, the tournament, the organizers will announce uh, that uh, there is an advocate here, basically like uh, appeals committee or anything, but uh, sort of um, that, I assume from your perspective, the more everybody is aware that you are there. I mean, even for those who will behave wrongly, hopefully it could be uh, an incentive not to do it. I mean, is that what how you're seeing it as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think we, we envision this, trying to normalize this as much as possible, and it should be as normal as, you know, at the start of the round, they announce, you know, 
you mm-hmm. really shouldn't have your phone with you. These are your arbiters for today. These are your advocates for today. And mm-hmm. like, it should be as normal as that. And then everyone feels safe. Everyone knows that they always have someone to turn to. And it, I, I think it will act as a deterrent because people will know that there's always someone there. When I, I read your, your website, that was one thing that struck me, that you said that, I mean, well, you can do a lot of help and support, but for instance, with legal things, you, you cannot help, if that's understanding it correctly. Yeah, so we are not, um, like, we cannot provide, like, legal advice. Uh, we ourselves have a lawyer, but our lawyer mainly deals with, you know, the legalities of running a nonprofit. Um we can point you into the direction of um, where you can find legal help. So in the U.S., there is a, another nonprofit organization. It's called HelpingSurvivors.org. Um, they specifically connect uh, survivors with pro bono legal work. So to kind of work through the legal process of, of what that would look like for anyone who kind of wants to go through the legal system to uh, solve their cases. But um we ourselves are more of, of kind of a resource and support hub. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, I think I have, well, I'm probably, I'm too much a fan of the project. I've more or less run out of, uh, of critical questions, but maybe <laughs> there is something that uh, you would like to, to add. I haven't asked you about. Um, um, I think one thing that's really important for us is that although we're the women in chess foundation, we really are like for everyone and we want to make chess safe for everyone. And with the advocacy program specifically, uh, we think it's really important for men and women to get involved because one thing we talked about was uh, the possibility for, you know, misconduct to go reported um, with young boys and and up and coming uh, young boys in the the chess world. And so um, we want to have a diverse group of advocates. So, um, if uh, there are, you know, men in chess who think the advocacy program might only be for women, um, that's not necessarily the case. And so, yeah. And, well, when you mentioned uh, minors, I assume parents are also very welcome to report mm-hmm. and, and, well, you will provide support for them as well, I guess, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, anyone who is around the chess world in any capacity, ideally, you know, involved in over the board chess in some way. Uh, is welcome to to apply to become an advocate, um, and I, I I definitely think it's very important that we have men involved with this because I think men are by far the best role models for other men. I think it's it's just the reality of life, and I think you know, as men, we do have a responsibility to set a good example for others, especially with the next generation. Um, and I think this is a very positive step towards you know improving the chess community massively because I think. This to me, this is the biggest problem in the chess world. The the fact that only fifteen percent of rated players are women is something that is not good for the chess world, but it's also a massive potential. Like we, there's, it's almost an untapped market of fifty percent of the population, and the amount of you know opportunity for growth there in terms of you know people playing in tournaments, people buying chess books, people making online content is just huge. So. Yeah, this is the first step, I think, towards solving that, but there's still a long way to go. And there's, yeah, we have plans with other areas as well. So, How can people help? I understand, of course, that one can uh, enlist as a, an advocate, but that 
well, you know, that could be quite uh, time consuming for, for the individual. I mean, you actually, well, and, and rightfully so, you have quite some expectations. That's only reasonable if someone has to function to, to give advice for, for people in this situation. But is there other ways people can help? How, how do you work uh, financially? How, how independent are you? Do you have uh, massive donors? Is there anything you want to declare on that? <laughs> Yeah, so we're a we're a 501c3 nonprofit registered in the U.S. Um, so we are a not-for-profit organization. Every donation that's made goes to um, either running the advocacy program or helping us, uh, you know, help clubs and federations with safe play guideline reforms. Uh, we wanna we have big dreams of you know putting on events, uh, kind of to set the standard for how women events should. Uh, be conducted and run and marketed. And we want to do sponsorships for young up and coming female chess players. We want to do mentorship programs. We have a lot of ideas. Um, But yeah, so we're strictly like donation uh, via the website. And um, I don't know, Dodgy, do you have anything else to add to that? Um, Yeah, we we would love some massive donors. Um, That would be wonderful. Uh, We don't currently have any, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're still new so. yeah it's only yeah. been two weeks <laughs> well i assume it's been two weeks since you launched i mean well i have i mean i went through the web pages everything is actually explained quite thoroughly you must have spent uh, a considerable amount of time getting ready for this launch right yeah we've been working on this since february march uh-huh. yeah a very long time yeah, and it's we've had a lot of conversations with different people in the chess world, different you know heads of federations, different people from clubs, different players. Um, so a lot of thought has gone into this, um, and it's been yeah, it's taken us six or seven months to put everything together. Do you feel extremely welcomed, or would you also feel some resistance? I mean, a theory could be that that while not much has done. Uh, against these things it's because it's uncomfortable or even for some maybe they will lose some privileges and such do you feel extremely welcomed or do you feel actually some ambiguity towards you i i expected much more negativity um and the overwhelming response so far has been very positive um we yeah for the first couple of weeks we've had no no real pushback on social media um, there's obviously occasionally you'll get some some comments, which is totally normal, I think, on the internet. Um, but certainly far less than I expected. And uh, we've had a lot of people reaching out to us uh, to either help uh, to volunteer to do stuff with us, uh, or to become advocates, or even to you know help us. Uh, financially whether it's you know through sponsorship or uh through different things so yeah we'll see and i i think overall the yeah the, there's been a lot of enthusiasm i think and we're we're only just starting i think once we start to push things more i think it's only going to get bigger yeah no it doesn't surprise me much. I think the problem has been a lot. I mean, I've been in the chess world much longer than, than than you two, and the problem has been around. I would say that there has probably been frustration that nothing is being done, or perhaps people who like to do something they have no clue about what to do. 
I mean, well, you seem to actually have an idea of what should be done. I mean, well, you're copying things from other spheres, and that's meant as a compliment. Why should uh, chess invent the, the wheel again? It's much better to go on uh, use practices and such. You seem to bring some stuff there. So, I mean, well, from my perspective, you, well, it sounds very promising, and uh, I'm, I know much more about uh, your project. So, really, best of luck. I, I sincerely really hope it, it goes well, and I hope that you will keep this uh, amazing energy and love you have for the project. So, thanks. Thanks, thanks a lot for, for passing by. Appreciate thanks very it. Much. Thanks for having me. Thank You're you. Welcome. Go to womaninchess.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye, guys. Bye.